During the coronavirus crisis and lockdown, Rabbi Katz will be delivering an informal pre-Mincha study session on Zoom every day at 6.50 p.m. If you're interested in joining, please send an email to rabbidkatz at gmail.com indicating that you would like to be added to the Zoom meeting, and you'll then be sent the link to access the Zoom learning session. Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Sunday afternoon. Um, going to do one today. I was actually going to do this the other day, but since I did something about the sphere last week, so uh, I didn't have time to put biography together. But uh, but I'm going to do it today. Before I start, I want to say that today's uh, podcast is being sponsored by the Garden family here in Baltimore. And, uh, and we're all stuck in the same boat. And I wish them and their family and their grandchildren, everybody, good health. Uh, everybody needs their foot to get a foot shalima. And uh, we will all weather this uh, together, as they say. Happens to be also, I'll throw this in, that... Uh, because my sister wrote me from Israel, it's my, I had an aunt, who I never knew, my father's sister died under Stalin, you know, back in the 30s, all sounds to be a yard site. So, uh, anyway, appreciate all the people who are sponsored, you can imagine, in a time like this, is the financial difficulties are great for everybody, including yours truly, so all those who are helping out the best they can, I really appreciate it, and without any further ado, I'll talk about the Chacham Tzvi, because I saw that name among the others, and that's the one I immediately zeroed in on. Chachamsi was a big rabbi in the late 16 and early 1700s. I've done a lot of them this year. Maybe I'm just naturally drawn to that. There's something about the 17th, 18th century rabbinate that I've always found interesting. And, um, you know, and, and f- from a certain degree, the, Chassams, uh, the Chachamsi, excuse me, is, you know, a, a, the same type. But on the other hand, he also had a very unique and unusual and very colorful career. Not that he sought it, but that's what he got. And so he kind of stands out, as I'll make the point in a second. So I'm talking about somebody who was a big rabbi in Europe, Ashkenazi rabbi, in uh, from 1656 to 1718. Um, but he went around the world in 80 days. He had a lot of places that he was uh, serving in. And here you got to know a certain amount of geography. I can't help it. I realize geography is often people's uh, weak point. And historical geography, forget about it. But what can I do? It's no gaya. The uh, the person I'm talking about, his name was Tzvi Hirsch Ashkenazi, right? Hirsch Ashkenazi. Now, he's from central uh, Moravia. Not really. I've already spoken a couple of times about the fact that when you get to people who live in the 1600s, especially Rabbonim in Lithuania and Poland, since there was a terrible Cossack massacres followed up by the Russian invasion and all that stuff going on in Poland, from 1648 to 1668, something like that, 1672, so, smack in the middle of the 1600s, it's not surprising that a lot of Rabbanim and others ran away from Poland, and they moved westward, running away from the old Kazakh stuff, as they hoped. The country next westward often was the, the Austrian Empire. You know, the empire ruled by the House of Austria, by the Kopsbergs. But it was much smaller at that time. 
than it was later. And the reason is because all this is no get to our story. <clears throat> the reason is because of the Turks, the Ottoman Turkish Empire. People probably don't know unless they've listened to my podcast or lectures, or you just happen to know that the Muslims once owned about a third of Europe. The Ottoman Turkish Empire in 1656, when the was born, was uh, humongous. Not only was it the Middle East, but it was also, as I said before, a good part of Europe. Uh, let me put it this way, Bulgaria, Serbia, Macedonia, Greece, Albania, these were all countries in the Ottoman Empire. And Slovenia, and Slovakia, and this, not Slovakia, Slovenia, and uh, Croatia, oh, not Croatia either, Slovenia, and Corinthia, whatever. And uh, I'm, I'm not finished. Romania, a good chunk of the Ukraine, all under the Turks. And Hungary. Budapest was the capital of Christian Hungary for a long time, obviously. And then it was conquered by the Turks in 1525. And they held it for 150, 160 years. So if you're a Hungarian Jew uh, in Hungary, you're under a Turkish government uh, for a long time, if you happen to be living at that time. And Hungary, therefore, many don't know this, was an interesting mixture. You had Ashkenaz and Sephardic Jews there. The Jews who were there before were Ashkenazic-type Jews. But the Jews who came in with the Turkish conquest were often Jews from Turkey and places like that, Spanish Jews, Sephardic. My group, me, myself, and I, when we went this last summer, I guess it was, about a year ago, to um, Central Europe, one of my history trips, so we went to Budapest. At that time, there was uh, no Budapest. It was just Buda, and it was on, and they called Ofen, Uban. And this farm they call Uban, uh, which really is Ofen. Uh, and that's the old name for Buddha. And uh, there was a Jewish community there. And when I was, uh, you know, our tour guide, whatever, took us to a place where they had a, what they call Turkish synagogue, which means the leftovers of a shoal from the 1500s, when it was Sephardim in the Turkish times. Didn't look like an Ashkenazi shoal, because in Ekonomi, it was ruled by the Turks. So keep this in mind. The reason I mention that, therefore, is that the Turks expanded, 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 and conquered, until they were stopped. One of, the, one of those who stopped them was the Austrians, who fought wars for a long, 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 long time to keep the Turks back. It's a whole very interesting chapter in European history that I'll spare you at the moment. But what I'm trying to get at is that it means that the Turkish frontier was very close to Vienna, and therefore was very close to what we call today the Czech Republic. You understand? Uh, so you, if you live in Prague, you're not that far away from the Turks, unlike today. And if you lived, as our hero did, was born in Moravia, which is southeast of Prague, closer to Vienna, your mom is closer to the Turks. Hold that thought. Now, our person today, uh, the Chachamtsi, as they came to be called, <coughs> I shouldn't call him the Chachamtsi, I should call him Chachamtsi, as you'll see in a minute, which means Chachamtsi, not Chacham, Chachamtsi. Um, you'll see why I'm, I'm saying this in a second. She was born from a refugee family. And as I said before, he had a very colorful life. Not that anybody's looking for a colorful life. Usually we like to have a boring life, correct? Would you agree with me? Most people want to have a boring life. Um, but his uh, parents and grandparents were uh, big uh, scholars, big rabbinim in uh, Vilna. They come from Lithuanian origin. And, I mean, big and his grandfather was a Shara Fryim, a big rabbi. And 
I mean, the time of the Shach and all that. And when the Kazakh, well, not the Kazakh, when the Russian army came to attack Vilna, he, you know, they started killing everybody, including, of course, the Jews. And this rabbi, the Shah Ephraim, and his, and his daughter and son-in-law ran away. And they basically escaped, just ahead of the, uh, of the attackers. And when he fled, so he moved from place to place until finally he got a job as a rabbi in Budapest. Or I keep saying again, Buddha. Because if you've ever been in Budapest or you know anything, it's really two cities on, on two different sides of the river connected by bridges. So now it's like one big city, Buddha and Pest. Pest, as Dongir is called. But uh, uh, in those days, it was just the Buddha side. And so this is interesting. A guy started out in Vilna and ended up in Buddha, which is not usually the way you think about it. He's a Litvish and he ends up as, as, as the rub of the main city of Hungary. You know, I can't think of the last time that happened. Now, well, the answer is the 17th century. Now, uh, there's a very famous story. I know I've told this before because it's a legendary. In the case, listen to what I'm about to tell you. The Chacham Tzvi, I'm going to use the way we always talk instead of calling them Chacham Tzvi. The Chacham Tzvi is the father of Yaakov Emden. Yaakov Emden wrote a Velt. And one of the things he wrote is this uh, autobiography called Megillah Sefer, which is a kiss and tell book. And it's a full of scandalous uh, information. And that's why... I have a, 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 a book at home written by Satmar guy who says it's a fake because it couldn't be a real book. Nobody can write like that. No from person can write like this. And that's where he's very self-revelatory. However, I mean, he tells you about his daily habits more than you want to know. Yaakov and I'm talking about. But he also talks a lot about his father, who he hero-worshipped. That's where you get a lot of information about the life of Chacham Tzvi. And what he says is, it's not the only source, but it's a very vivid source. One of the things he says is that um, his father was, was grandfather, uh, again, uh, I said this wrong, his great-grandfather was the Rav, uh, Shara Ephraim. So his grandparents, who would be the parents of Chacham Tzvi, was the daughter of the Rav and the son-in-law. And when the Russians came, they all ran away, and they basically chased, and they, they were killing everybody, Kedarko and Bakodesh, the Russians, and they're running over a bridge away from the city to escape. And the Russians were catching up with them. And the father and the daughter, in order to escape being caught and killed, jumped in the water like in a movie. You know, they jumped off the bridge into the water and swam away while they were shooting at them. And they survived. The son, meaning the son-in-law of the rabbi, the, the, the daughter's husband, didn't jump with them. And was caught or something he was never seen again. And the father and the daughter had all these adventures, as you may imagine, but they escaped physically, and they must have wandered and had a terrible time, but by the time the story's over, give it about two years or something like that, he ended up getting a stella because he was a world-class gone, and he came to Rabbi in Buda, in Hungary, which is far away from Vilna, I don't blame him for moving far away, okay, and it was in the Turkish Empire. Now, the famous story that Yaakov Emden tells, which is very well, a legend, I don't mean it didn't happen, I mean it's very well known, is the Aguna story, because... The um, husband wasn't seen. As I told you, the father and the daughter jumped off, but her husband didn't. And they wanted eventually came to safety in Buddha. And what do you do with the daughter? She's a young lady, young girl, you know, in her tw early 20s. And is her husband alive or dead? If she, and, and, and uh, you know, if he's dead, she wants to get married. But nobody knew what happened to the husband. This was typical of what happened in the Khmelnytsky massacre time and all these uh, things, aside from the deaths. He had a belt of a gunashalas, as you as you can imagine. 
And being that he was a famous rabbi, he put out a, an announcement in all the communities, if you know any information that could help my daughter one way or the other, the husband's alive or the husband's dead, please come and tell us. And the story is that Adam came and said that he's dead. They saw his head being chopped off by the Russians. And they were subjected to Drisho Chakir and all that, you know, they were examined. And their testimony held out, and they weren't, didn't mean anything bad. You know, they weren't that type. And so, it was accepted, and he told his daughter, you can, you can get married. Famously, she says, I don't feel like getting married. He says, no, you can't have that attitude. Move on with your life. She says, I just don't feel right. Well, you know the end of the story. The husband eventually showed up. And the father was a big rabbi. He had egg all over his face. Because he poskin wrong and I'm going to shallow. It's like the worst thing you can do. And, uh, and for his own daughter, no less. And the story is, he said, I see, I don't have see after this ride, therefore... You know, I'm going to swear off. I'm never going to pass and I'm going to shout again. Of course, if you wanted to play the, uh, you know, what, what shall I say, art school way, you could say, I guess, no, the fact that the daughter never married on the base that shows he did that. See, after this one. But I'm telling you how he said it. That's how the story, that's what Yaakov says in the book. And so this father, so the, the couple was reunited. And they didn't stay with the father. They moved to Moravia, which is in the Austrian Empire. Not that far away. I just told you again. From Hungary to Moravia, it's not that, I mean, it's not the next door, but it's not that far away. And so, even though there were two different zones, he moved from the Turkish Empire across the military frontiers where they're always fighting into the Christian part, which is Moravia, the Trebich. But uh, they weren't physically that far away. Now, um, that means that when their son was born in, in, in 1656, and the Vilna story happened like in the 1650s, you know, so they were united and they got married. Uh, they, uh, they didn't get married. They, they resumed their married life. And so the baby was born, Sri Hirsch, uh, in this context. Now, that means he grows up in Moravia, which I've discussed many times over here. Uh, you know, if you don't know anything about it, you have to refer to early podcasts. I'm not going to hazard a whole business all over again. All those network of small communities and things like that, led by Nicholsburg. But Trebush is a, you know, a small but important community. Every one of these places had little yeshivas. But this is a boy growing up with a grandfather who's a world-class gone and who made a yeshiva in Buddha. So it's not surprising the boy becomes a teenager, they say, go learn by your grandfather. He has a yeshiva there, and being that he's such a big deal, which he was, the Shah Ephraim, so that's the, you know, that'll be like the local lake court or something. And that's what he did. So he went from Moravia to Buddha. Now, from the uh, inter-ethnic Sephardi Ashkenaz uh, point of view, Buddha was a very interesting place in the 1660s and 1670s because it's a mixture of Ashkenaz and Sephard, which you don't often get. You know where you see this in Israel, correct? Think, for example, Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim, there have always been, always been Ashkenazi, big rabbis, and Sephardi, and they're far, close to each other in physical proximity. So you've always had a different, more cosmopolitan um, understanding of Yiddishkeit then if you live totally in Litvisha land, or totally in Yeki land, or totally in Hasidic land, where everybody's like you. But if you live in a place where there's different types of Jews like you, as is the case today for New York, you know, Flatbush, or anywhere in any big community in America, um, and particularly in Eretz Yisrael, so you have, like I said before, you're aware of different ethnic and different minhagim. This can make the Chacham uh, uh, an interesting guy. Now, so he learns what the in the in the Yeshiva and Buddha with the grandfather, um, who died in sixteen seventy eight. 
So the boy was uh, 22 years old. So, I mean, his Iker education, he got with the grandfather. But uh, he didn't stay there all the way through. Here's the point I'm trying to get. Because Buddha was part of the Turkish Empire, and they had a lot to do with the Sephardim, and because the Sharfrim was a big Tamakacham, so he had a lot of correspondence and shaykhs with these other Sephardim in a way that other Ashkenazi rabbis in the 1600s, for example, wouldn't have had. And so he dealt, you know, face-to-face and by correspondence with Jewish communities that were super Sephardic, I mean Spanish Jews, and communities located all throughout the Balkan uh, Peninsula. You know, and he had shalos and chubas and letters back and forth to these real Sephardi, Ladino, Spanish-speaking rabbis in Bulgaria and in Turkey and in uh, Greece and uh, Albania and Serbia and all these places which were all part of the Turkish Empire. And so he had unusual knowledge of uh, the Sephardi ways. And the grandson, this our hero, Tzvi Hirsh Ashkenazi, after he learned with the father in Buddha, he did something very unusual, that is, he went to learn in a Sephardi yeshiva in Salonika. No, it's a real Sephardi yeshiva. That's, you know, they don't talk the Yiddish over there or anything. It's Ladino. Yeah, get it? And so, I can't think of another case. And certainly no famous rabbi, but an Ashkenazi rabbi traveling to learn in a Turkish Sephardic yeshiva in a place like Salonika, which was super duper Sephardi Ladino. That's what it was. And in the 1600s, it was a major Torah center. And he learned by people like Yaakov Kobo and other people you never heard of. But I say you, because most of the people listening, I assume Ashkenazi don't have any idea who the big Sephardi Gedolim were. Although I've, I've said many times that they had their, their share, they had big people, but we live in such a racist world, Ashkenazi-centric world, that most of us never heard of these big people who were in towns like Sarajevo and uh, Thessalonica and, you know, Istanbul and Izmir and places like that. And so here you have a guy who's in his 20s, he obviously was a big learner in those. We wouldn't be talking about it if he wasn't a big Talmud Chacham. And he has an unusual exposure to what, what I would call both sides of the Lumbus scale in the pre-modern world. To, to, to put it in simple terms, he had the Ashkenazi style of Pilpul and the Sephardi style of Pilpul. They were similar and they were different. This is not the Brisker style. This is not Rosh Hashanah. That comes later in history. This is in the early modern days when the old system of Chilukim and uh, Pilpulim was in its waning gears, but was more moderate. So, if uh, to use a simple phrase, this is the age of the Marshal, you might say, or a little bit later. And, uh, and, at, the, and at the top of the game, uh, Ryako Kubo in, in, uh, in Salonika was a very high-level yeshiva. And so, like I said before, here's a guy who learns the Ashkenazi style of Lumdus with, uh, with the Pilpul that we've discussed here many times when they talked about Shalom Shachna and people like that. and uh, But also, the Sephardi style was a little bit different. It's called Iyun. Not many people know about this. Uh, this is a whole tradition that the Sephardim evolved on their own, starting in the 15th century, with the Yitzhak Kampanton and the Dark Eha Talmud, the book he wrote then, which is a manual how to do Sephardi style pilpul, and uh, it became developed in what they call Iyun. Uh, I myself never heard of this until 25 years ago or something like that when uh came across these articles, mainly by students of Lieberman from the JTS. You know, saying he had a couple of students who knew how to learn. And uh, what was the other guy, Dimitrovsky? Uh, Professor Dimitrovsky, who was a big Talmud Chacham. I don't know why he was teaching there, but he was a big Talmud Chacham guy. Big Talmud Chacham. I mean, a big Talmud Chacham. And uh, he, he was interested in this uh, particular subject of the Sephardic Lomtis in the 15 and 1600s. 
going back to Rabbi Yaakov Beirav, that far back, and people of that style, and, uh, you know, uh, what's it called, Da'atzimus Yosef, and a whole world that most of us ne- never even heard of, and Kabbalah Kamer, they never heard about it. So there are interesting articles about it. There used to be a magazine by the son of uh, Rabbi Nisim. What was his name? Meir Ben Ayahu. And he used to, uh, uh, maybe it's called, I forget the name, and uh, he used to write a lot of uh, these very super scholarly articles on the different style of Sephardi Iyun. So here you have a rabbi whose grandfather's from Vilna, who was a colleague of the Shach, on the same Besdin. Then you have that he goes to Buddha. Um, he's bringing the Litvish style of learning of the 1600s to Hungary. And then he's, and then and then the Sephardi. And then, of course, you're going down to uh, uh, Salonika. And at the same time, and I want to emphasize this, he's not just learning the Lumdus like we do today, but since his, his grandfather was a Shire Ephraim, one of the great Shalos and Shubas guys, you know, he's up in the Pantheon, so he's also learned Halacha Lamaisa, which means not only the Lumdus, but how does one then apply the Lumdus to actual practical Halacha in real life affairs, in which it's not just ivory tower learning, but you're applying to a real case. This is an Aguna in front of you. This is a, a, a Pekoch Nefesh situation, perhaps, in front of you. This is a real Hepsim Ruba situation in front of you. This is an Ava situation. Now we're in the Corona period. How much weight do you give to Ava, to anti-Semitism? Kalvachom are the rest of the four parts of the Shulchan Aruch. So that's what I mean. He got a very interesting education in this way. Uh, I would also point out that this is the era of Shabtai Tzvi. Um, he's born 10 years before the Shabtai Tzvi period. So he grew up in the, in the era of Shabtai Tzvi and Sabatianism. In fact, he had relatives, close relatives, uncles, I don't know, this kind of stuff, who were Sabatians. Historians have discovered this in the last, uh, I don't know, 50 years, 100 years that he himself had a lot of relatives that were but he wasn't, right? The Chachamsi was a, a big opponent, okay? So uh, it's just very interesting. Now, um, what happened was, after he learned in the Sephardic Yeshiva, so he went back to Buddha. His, his grandfather died. And basically, um, you know, there was a whole fight the grandfather was in about I don't want to go into that now. Forget it. If you are you related to anybody in town, you can't be a rabbi. We're not interested in that today. I'm sticking with the Chacham Tzvi. So he returns back to Buddha. And he gets married over there and has a child. And uh, basically, understandably, wants to take over the position of his grandfather. He wasn't elected to the job. But he made like a yeshiva there or something like that. He must have had, you know, I imagine a uh, kehillah. This would be Ashkenaz Jews, but... They very uh, surrounded by people with fezes and turbans. So in other words, it's Ashkenaz in the middle of a, a lot of Sephardism. And uh, that would put him in his 20s, 25, 28, 29, 30. In 1930, all hell broke loose. He was, uh, Buddha turned out to be the wrong place to, at, at, the, at the wrong time. Uh, th- th- this was, uh, uh, n- now comes a certain tragedy. In order to understand what happened... You have to know that the 1680s is an, an unbelievably important decade in the Turkish-Austrian, or maybe I sh- uh, fights, or maybe I should say the Christian-Muslim fights. Because that's when the Christians finally turned the tables and started to beat back the Muslims. Until then, it was always the other way around. And uh, in 1683, this is very famous, very famous indeed. In 1683, the Turks were so powerful, they wanted to take out Vienna, the capital of Austria, which would put them literally in the belly button of Germany, if they would take over uh, Vienna, they'd almost be poised to advance smack into Germany and France and those places. And uh, they came close. 
and uh, they surrounded the city with a huge army, and they besieged it, and the Austrians fought like crazy, and just when they were about, this is a very famous thing, they recently made a movie, a Polish movie all about this the other day, and just when they uh, were about to go down, the Austrians, they were rescued by a surprise attack from the King of Poland, who showed up with an army unexpectedly, John Sobieski, who perhaps I've mentioned here in the past, who was a Ohavius Row. And Sobieski attacked the Turks in the rear, totally busted them, and from then on the Turks were on the retreat. They fought every inch of the way, but they were on the retreat. So now the Christian forces, these are mainly Germanic armies, Austrian, Bavarian, Prussian, that kind of junk, um, advanced slowly but surely into Hungary. And in 1686, they besieged Buda. You understand? Oven. You understand? They besieged over there. Now, um, in this case, it was a bitter siege. It's a famous siege in European history because the Turks would not surrender. And they were very tough and they preferred to die. And they did. So they basically fought to the last man. Which therefore means that the Christian forces, I'll call them Austrian. The main leaders are Austrian, but it's all kind of Germanic forces. The Austrian forces bombarded the city with cannon and all this kind of junk and uh, bombed the hell out of everybody. And uh, who's, so let me put it this way, that's not the right place to be if you want to be a rub with a yeshiva or a urshul. It's the wrong place to be. And unfortunately, uh, a bomb, no, it was a cannonball, that they were, were fired by the besiegers, went right into the house of Chacham Tzvi and killed his wife and child. You get it? That was mom's boom. It, it, it blew them apart and knocked their heads off. It's unbelievable. So I think it was Shabbos too, maybe. So it was like a horror scene, correct? You're sitting at the Shabbos table, although obviously it was like a bombardment, and they got bad luck. A cannonball went <laughs> right through the window and killed him, not, not the husband. And uh, so he was obviously a shock. But on the other hand, he wasn't hanging around there. And so somehow or other, he escaped before the city was captured by the invaders, which is a good thing, because when the invaders, the Austrians and their allies came in, they killed everybody, and they killed all the Jews, right? Nothing personal. They were out to kill everybody. So they killed the Muslims, they killed the Jews. You know what I'm saying? down the shoulder. It was a terrible uh, scene, okay? So here's a guy who's 30 years old. And all of a sudden, his whole world fell apart. He got married. He was setting up a thing. He was obviously wanted to succeed his grandfather in what was not an unchashab kill in Buddha, and it don't exist anymore. And so he basically hit the road, and he fled south to where the to, away from the invaders. In other words, deep into the Turkish Empire. So where did he go? He went to Sarajevo, which is in Bosnia. Which, if you know the map, is today part of an area. Bosnia Herzegovina is part of Serbia, I guess, or Serbia was fighting over there, killing people. Uh, I have mentioned Sarajevo once or twice before. I think we did a year ago. Uh, I was in the Khazni David, you know, David Pardo. Uh, Sarajevo is in town. You may know it, you may not know it. First of all, a very pretty city. I haven't been there, but I've seen it. And second of all, it was the Ir Ve'em Bisro. That was the headquarters of Sephardi, Yiddishkeit, and Torahism. Sephardi Torahism. They had great scholars there, and Frum Balabatim, and very uh, yeshivish. Uh, as we would call today, kind of Saviva. And that would be perfect for him. And so he, uh, uh, what do you call it? You know, ran, ran there. And he was there for a little while. I'm sure, you know, you don't get this from the old records. Probably he was in a shock, emotional shock, I imagine. I mean, what I just described is, is a horror scene, correct? 
and then he says like this, um, okay, uh, what happened, I forget why, maybe his parents were there at the time, and he went looking for his parents who had been captured by the Austrian army, something like that, uh, I'm not taking the trouble to go look it up, pull out the Miguel Safer, but I told you, it's a movie, and, uh, he found out that, uh, his parents were captured by uh, these German uh, guys, Prussians. Now, at that time, they called Brandenburg. And they're in Berlin, the capital of Brandenburg, where later the capital of Russia. So he's got to go and raise money and buy him out from captivity over there. And so he travels in a very roundabout route from Sarajevo, which is right, ne believe it or not, right near the Venetian Empire, Venice. And so he wants to go back to northern Europe, but you want to go through the Austrian lines, because they'll kill any Jews they see, so you got to go on a roundabout route. And so I know you don't know what I'm talking about, because you don't know your geography, but it's all in the Adriatic. Uh, maybe some of you have been there on luxury cruises, uh, Dubrovnik and such places. This used to be all part of Venice, the Empire of Venice. And he was able to get to Venice and go up to the city of Venice. And there he hung around with uh, the Dvar Shemol, who was a big, smarty rabbi over there. And bottom line is, he goes north and he finally reaches, travels through Central Europe, this is quite a walk, right? Even by carriage, it's quite a travel. Uh, eventually gets to Berlin. And uh, while he's in Berlin, so let's put it this way. The guy's like 33, 34 years old. And his eligible bachelor, as a, I hate to put it that way, but his eligible bachelor, they always look at me, and a big Hamad Chacham. And he's got yichas he's got coming out of his ears. So in the old Judaism, that's what you want, right? The guy with big yichas and a big Hamad Chacham. And so uh, they made a shidduch for him, and he married Sar Rivka, who, uh, whose father was the um, rabbi, the Av Bezin. Remember, we're talking about the 1600s, when they used to have the guy who's the head of the, the communal rabbi together with Rashiva, of uh, the, one of the more important communities, not so large, what I will call Ahu or, or Hamburg, but I have to watch myself. And uh, so he married the daughter. And he moved in with his father-in-law to be uh, a Rosh Hashiva. So basically, it was one of those marriages in which it's not shot out support you. I mean, the guy's 35. You know, support somebody like a 35. I will support you in running yeshiva. She, it's like I would say today to somebody, come and move to Baltimore, and we'll pay for you to have a yeshiva because we know you're a draw, and it'll work. Now, this community was north of Berlin on the uh, Baltic, I guess. It's uh, actually in the Atlantic, uh, called uh, Ahu, Altona Hamburg Wandsbeck, which means that there were three communities um, in that place, and they were all in different jurisdictions. Uh, you know, I'll give you a little bit of an idea, because it's hard to explain to people like this. I bet you, have you been to a lot? Probably you're in a lot. So when you stand in a lot, you know, here I am in a lot, but I look over and I see the Jordan thing, Aqaba, right? It's, it's near, right nearby. And if I look to my right, I see Egypt. Don't they show you that when you get to Elad? Because it's on a point, you know, the bottom point of Israel. So you can be at a certain place, and not far away is one country, and you go the other way, not far away is another country. So here were three small communities that were actually physically close to each other. One of them belonged to Denmark. One of them belonged as an independent uh, city-state, an independent city-state in Germany called Hamburg. The one in Denmark was called uh, uh, Altona, Altona. And there was no one in Wandsbeck, I don't remember who they belonged to, if anybody. And so, the Jews 
originally had a Kehillah in A, and a Kehillah in B, and a Kehillah in C. But using common sense, they say, you know, we should unite, at least at least for purposes of having a basin of Adarabonim, to have one Kehillah. Every community will really run its own show, but as far as the halacha stuff goes, so it became known as the, the triple community. Even though the name, you know, so, sounds like there are three New York cities. They're not. They're three very small places. But nevertheless, it became um, a fairly well-known uh, city, and Hamburg particularly is a port city where there's a lot of business to be done. And here you had a Sephardic community, Spanish-Portuguese, you know, guys who ran away from the Inquisition, all that. They're the first ones that were allowed there. And then you had these Ashkenazi Jews who were in Alt- Altona mainly, and uh, this, the communities were combined, which is always a trick because you have to know how to manage your relationships halakhically the Ashkenaz and Sephardi. Therefore, the people who are rabbis in these communities, uh, if you know their uh, Charles and Shubas, uh, always had to be sensitive to both sides of the issue. I remember just off the top of my head, one of the later ones, uh, the Knesset Yecheskel, deal with some famous question about Hanukkah. Do you remember this? And in Hilchus Hanukkah, even though it's not this time of the year, if you have a... Cause it, you know how it goes. But Ashkenazim, everybody lights. But as far as I'm only head of the household lights. And I forget exactly, there was a guy who the, who the landlord was Sephardic and the, and, and the uh, tenant was Ashkenazim the other way around. And how are they going to work it out, you know, with, with the menorahs? I'm just saying, you have, in, in, in this community, in Hamburg and then in Altona and Wandsbeck, mostly in Hamburg, situations where Sephardic Jews, Spanish-Portuguese Jews, live cheek by jowl, side by side, with Ashkenazi Jews. But it's not so common. And so our hero then became... See, he started a second career. Basically, it's like somebody surviving the Holocaust and starting all over again. You understand? And he said, you know, it didn't work in Buddha and these other places. Now, uh, he was, made a yeshiva over there, and he was there for almost 20 years. So uh, from the time he's like 35 to eh, early 50s. Right? Now, he died at 62, so it's early 50s. Uh, which means, I would say, the best years of his life. Uh, uh, something like that. Best year of his life. And there it was pretty good because his father was the Yav Basin, so he got along that way. And, um, and, and they raised many children. I think he had like 10, 12 children there. Uh, which you can totally understand. He lost his family the first time. And second of all, um, he had a big reputation because he was a giant Tamakacham. And he knows how to get along with the Portuguese Jews because... You know, let's put it this way. He, he doesn't speak Spanish. Well, he probably spoke Spanish. That's one of the points I wanted to make. In the course of all these wanderings, he picked up a lot of languages, which is absolutely unique for a typical rabbi of the 17th century. Usually Ashkenazi rabbi just knows Yiddish, doesn't know anything other than Yiddish. Um, and that played a role later on. Uh, he knows Portuguese. He knew Spanish, I think. He knew Ladino for sure. He knew Italian. You see what I'm saying? I think he picked up German. I don't know. You know, he was he's, he's, uh, most unusual. And more importantly, he knows the Sephardic culture because he, he grew up, he went to Yeshiva in, in Salonika. So it must have been very interesting to be there at that time because he's a guy that can schmooze with somebody in one minute in Yiddish and then schmooze with another guy in Portuguese or in Ladino. And uh, you have these Russian Yeshivas now, right? They have, they have French and German and English. It's a plus. And like I said before, he knew a Welt, and this is where he became who he was. His reputation spread. And probably, uh, I wasn't there, but I assume he had probably one of the leading yeshivas in Europe during these 18 years. Um, you know, if you want to go by somebody who really knows this stuff, you, you, you go there. So it's not the Rav who's running the yeshiva, but the son-in-law. 
Now, um, eventually the father-in-law died. And uh, they, they elected him to, to take the place. Uh, it's in 1706. And uh, there was another guy who wanted the job. This happened a lot. And there were candidates. And so they ended up working out an uneasy truce. Like Rabbi Gamliel and the other guy. What's the name? Rulazar Nazaria. You know, you'll be six months the, the chief rabbi. And then I'll be six months. Listen. Bibi is doing this right now with Gantz. Isn't that what they're talking about in Israel? They're switching the government. You'd be prime minister now, be prime minister tomorrow, you'd be prime minister the next day. So they tried that over there. Now you know and I know, that ain't push it. If you have two tzaddikim with, with low ego, then it works. Here you had two tzaddikim with big ego. Because the Chacham Tzvi, you know, was not unaware of who he was. Let's put it that way. Uh, but nevertheless, this is, this, this, this is how it worked out. Now, the story is, let me explain what I mean. I'm not simply talking about the fact that people have egos stopping the Veltrine. That's for sure, right? And I imagine since this was in Germany, they probably were very mocked to work out who gets Shlishi and who gets Shisha. I'm, I'm very serious. And who gets Chos and Torah and all the rest of it. Fine. Okay, that you can work out. But what happens, listen closely how I'm going to explain this. What happens if it comes to coronavirus and one Rob says, I think the minions can be open. And the other one says, Behechlet, the Kenyans cannot be open. They have a real Kaluka date. Then what do you do? What do you do? You know what I'm saying? Then the whole system becomes counterproductive because the whole idea is to, to bring one level of observance for the whole community provided by a guttle, you know, by a, a real genuine Das Torah. What if the two guys are big and, and, they, and they contradict each other? I know this has never happened nowadays. Ha, ha, ha. But you, you, hear, what sound, you hear what I'm saying? Now, this, they disagreed on a number of factors because that's what's going to happen. When you get a Shila, Hawakik Shila, and a Guna case, in this case, you will have situations in which if you have two strong-willed individuals and each one is convinced that his reading of the Sugi is correct and his Psaka is right and the other guy is not, you have trouble in your hands. The famous story they say, I don't know if this is the one that did it, but could very well be, and one of the most famous cases in which the Chacham Tzvi was Involved, one of the famous cases was, and I bet you some of you know this, the chicken without the heart. Because basically a girl came in and she says she had a chicken, Shiloh, and there wasn't a heart there. And, uh, you know, does that mean there wasn't a heart? Or does it mean that the cat ate the heart and she didn't see it? You know, it fell out. And uh, all hell broke loose. Because A, Paskin one way, and B, Paskin the other. The Chacham uh, C, Paskin, that, uh, of course it was a heart. It's ridiculous. You can't have a chicken without a heart. No animal can survive without a heart. And therefore, what happened was, it fell out. And then you poskin accordingly. And um, the other one said, no, no, no. It could be there was no heart. And it, would that be a trefa and so forth? And f- the, the problem goes as follows. If you had two Rabbanim, each one on operation for six months, then each one had his circle, his yeshiva and kolel. This is so true in Klai so maybe the top guys get along, maybe they don't. But the younger guys, the bottom guys, definitely don't get along because they love Mechlekes. Oh my goodness. This is just in the nature. We see this in Israel, the Panovich and the others. They love the fights. And they Pashkin, Pashkvil, you know, each one writes the letters against the other. And this and that. And, you know, especially if it's Lumdus, each one tries to use the Lumdus to wipe the floor with the other guy, as the expression goes. And it turns into a whole mess. And uh, this is a shadow that's spread elsewhere. That's all you need. So I remember in Prague, Jonas and Abel just went against. Uh, Jonas was a young guy. He uh, uh, opposed the opinion of Chacham Tzvi. There is a theory. I don't buy it, but there is a famous theory that the reason 
the Yaakov Emden uh, swore hatred of Yonah Shemesh because Yonah Shemesh opposed his father on the on the famous case of the chicken and the uh, and the heart. Uh, who was there? Somebody wrote that many years ago. Uh, I think the Margulis Ayam, perhaps, uh, like a pamphlet or something, and uh, which is ingenious. But I don't think it's Eskahalon. Uh, and then dub it up, and Heimer went the other way. Uh, the chief rabbi Prague, that led to a fight in Prague. So in other words, in the 1600s, 1700s, happened not infrequently, not infrequently. They had these big, bitter fights over halachic socks. You understand? Now, uh, this can happen nowadays. You know, I, it, it never exactly develops that way. But uh, you can have bitter fights. And then it depends on the sociology. Uh, off the top of my head, I'm just talking over here. I remember, I remember, I was young. But where Moshe Feinstein came up with artificial insemination, well, all hell broke loose. And he was so bitterly uh, vilified, and I was in all these uh, magazines and and uh, Hungarian uh, uh, post game and all the rest of it. But since Ramosha finds he had the, such a solid block of supporters, it didn't matter. So sometimes it depends on sociology. You understand? So uh, in the case over here, the whole thing got very ugly, and the Chacham see like this, I need is like a hole in the head. You know, no, it, it, it wasn't fun anymore to be a Rav and a Rosh Hashiva in, in Altona, Hamburg, Vonpick. It wasn't fun. And, um, and consequently, um, he resigned, and um, it, they say that it made him sick. You know, let, let's put it this way. The son says that it gave him, uh, an, uh, what's the right word? Depression is not the right word, but you know what I'm saying. It, it gave him a certain marish um, chara. What would that be? You know, a, a dark mood. It brought out certain depressive tendencies in him. And um, negative ones, and some say they gave him liver troubles. Uh, what I mean to say is like this. So he, he wasn't the type of person that liked getting involved in these kind of fights, even though he had his share, because he called it like he saw it. Okay, he called it like he saw it. And so uh, one of the things he did was um, resign publicly. Then something very interesting happened. Since he was resigned, and he was in his 50s, so he was still old enough, I mean, you know, young enough, so he got a tremendous offer. Now, maybe he had negotiated before, maybe he was a smart fellow. The Cahill in Amsterdam hired him at an unbelievable uh, a big sum. They said 2,500 gulden, that was like giving somebody half a million bucks, which is unheard of in the rabbinic world that day. They all write about, wow, he got 2,500 gulden, Dutch gulden. And so he moved to Amsterdam, which is not that far from Hamburg. Okay, it's all in Northern Europe. It's not far at all. And so here he moved to the to the famous city of Amsterdam. Now listen closely. In Amsterdam, he was the rabbi of the Ashkenazic community, just like in in um, Ahu in Hamburg and Wandsbek and Altona. He was the rabbi of the Ashkenazic community, not of the Sephardim. The Sephardim held of him, and he could get along with them and speak their language literally. But that's not who was their rabbi was. So in Amsterdam. The community was about 100 years old. The first guys who showed up in Amsterdam were the Spanish Portuguese Jews running away from the Inquisition. This is very famous. And they built up their community, not very large numerically, but they had money. Uh, if you've been in Amsterdam, you've seen the Spanish Portuguese synagogue, it's pretty uh, large and impressive. And then you have um, an Ashkenazi community. These are the poor relatives, you know what I mean? The, the Polish Jews running away from Kamelnitsky and things like that, they moved to Amsterdam. And the Sephardic community wants to have nothing to do with them, in the sense you guys are Ashkenaz, you do your thing. And that's how it was. There were two separate communities, and they obviously 
uh, after a while, the Ashkenazi community had their richy riches, and they want a gadol, and that way they can lord it over the Sephardim. You have your rabbi, but we have one of the gadolia door, which they did. And uh, the bottom line is, they hired him at this uh, very uh, wonderful rate, and um, and he got a lot of covet over there, and this is where he published the um, the Chacham Tzvi, this his, his famous Sefer of Shalos and Shubas. And that really put his name in the pantheon, because um, it, it, here he deals with every shiloh you can imagine, and he does it in a solid way. Anybody who's familiar with the Chacham Tzvi knows that, you know, he gives you from the Gemara up, as it were. And he's a big lam. I mean, it's silly for me to even say it. He's a big lamdan. And you can see he works everything through. Plus, the, the, the Shah is very interesting. And he, he was a very original posek. And he basically called it like he saw it. He didn't care what anybody thinks. Again, just off the top of my head, Yaakov Enden says, my father, if it was up to him, he would abolish Kitneas. Hear what I said? And he was a big Ashkenaz guy. I know he learned by Sephard. He helped with Ashkenaz, but he helped the people are so, uh, what do you call it, into the kidneys that they end up doing bad the, the matzahs. And the matzahs come out chumstick or something like that. So, you know, it's a classic case where you're worried about a minute and you uh, mess up on the din. Uh, I ain't care what anybody said. Uh, he's, in, in there he has the famous shayla about the golem. Uh, I think that's the first one, maybe. The golem, which means can you count a golem for a minion? <laughs> now, I know all the jokes. In my show, they count a golem for a minion. But, he really, that autumn should never have they say for Yitzira. And um, what do you call it? Uh, this is the proof, such as there is, that the story of the Maral and the Golem is baloney, because the Maral died in 1610, and Chacham sees writing in the 1690s, which is not that long away. And he said, Oh, you mean a person that's created from a Kabbalah, from a Sefer Yetzira? Uh, you mean like uh, Rebellion of Chel, my great great grandfather did, or like Zeligai did in the Gemara? He doesn't mention the Maral at all. And it's unbelievable that he wouldn't. And if, if it was so, I mean, it's, it's, it's like standing, why didn't you talk about the morale? Shvami know that the story, it wasn't involved in morale at all, it was someone else. That's the rebellion of Chelm. And Baal Shem. Uh, um, so, I mean, that's a famous one. There are so many famous ones. Here's, here's a very interesting one, uh, which is, again, written about a lot in the books because uh, the historians are interested in this. They, it has to do with London. One of these days I'm going to talk a little bit more about London. But uh, maybe next week. Um, but uh, in London you had a community of uh, Sephardim uh, who came in Oliver Cromwell's time. Let's put it this way. The Jews were kicked out of England in 1290. They were not allowed to be back in England. So you couldn't, be, you couldn't come to England and say you were Jewish. It was illegal. But then in 1650s, they changed, and the, the Spanish-Portuguese Jews, Menashe and Israel, persuaded the dictator of England, because the king was dead, his head was chopped off, so he persuaded the dictator of England, Oliver Cromwell, who didn't hate the Jews, to let him back in on the basis of a don't ask, don't tell. It's like America with the Mexicans. You know, it's illegal, but they're here. And uh, ever since then, the Spanish-Portuguese Jews started coming in one by one, one by one, one by one, to London and places like that till they built up a small but a very interesting community. It was like a satellite community of, of Amsterdam. Uh, well, after a while, Ashkenazi Jews start coming to London. And, uh, and after a little while, the Ashkenazi Jews made their own shul, their own community. First they made a cemetery, then made a shul. You know how it goes.
and all these uh, congratulatory calls. Anyway, Shmuley, Shmuley and Dean had a baby girl. Uh, what was I talking about? The Chacham Tzvi. And uh, by the way, I don't think I mentioned, I believe, I think I have this right, the reason they call him Chacham Tzvi is because he got a smicha by the Svarim. So they didn't call him Rabbi, called Chacham. So his name instead of Reb Tzvi is Chacham Tzvi. I think that's how it works. Um, even though, of course, he called his Sefer Chacham Tzvi. But anyhow, I was saying that he had this community in London, and uh, these were Sephardic Jews and Portuguese Jews, and they're all, you know, BT, Balchubas, uh, not exact in London, it was notorious to be very schwach uh, on the Yiddishkeit end, meaning they're all from, but they're not real observant, you know, that kind of, kind of thing. This is what we call the Bevis Marx crowd, the ones that made that show a few years later. But I'm talking the 1600s. And so, one of the, in, in, they were a Portuguese Sephardic community, which is not the same thing as an Eastern Sephardic community. But one thing they did have was this notion that the Balabatim run the show. And so they had the rich Sephardic, and they want to be the ones in charge and not the rabbi. And they're all big Amaratsim. Boy, were they big Amaratsim. But uh, money they had. And therefore, if you ever go to the history of who were the uh, rabbis or Chachamim of the Sephardic community in the early years in London, in the late 1600s, early 1700s, they got a real cast of characters. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, what's the name? Yaakov Sasportis was there for a while. He is a big Talmud Chacham. But then they got this guy, Shlomo Ailon, who was like a, not a big Talmud Chacham at all. And he, when he was young, he was from the Balkan Sea, Simbasai with Shabtai Tzvi. And half the Sephardim in the community found out about it. And the other half said, you're not allowed to criticize the rabbi, especially since we elected him. And, oh my goodness, a lot of politics. So, um, the reason I'm mentioning it is because uh, he, this guy, Shlomo Ailon, was the rabbi there for a number of years in the 1690s, the Chacham. And uh, there are plenty of people in the community that suspected that a lot of what he said was not really from, was heretical. In other words, it was Sabatian. This is the era of Sabatianism. After Shabtai Tzvi died, people still believed in variations of that. And uh, eventually he sort of like left the uh, Kehilla because it was getting a little too hot for him in London. And he moved and we became the Chacham of the Portuguese community in Amsterdam, which was actually a kind of a promotion. Now, uh, which means that uh, he was able to avoid uh, being brought up on charges <laughs> by members of the community, most of whom... You know, with a few exceptions, didn't know anything anyway. So, you know, you talk about Shabbatian and not Shabbatian. They, they, don't, they don't know what this stuff means. And, uh, you know, not really. And uh, his successor they got was uh, uh, Dovinietto, who was an Italian rabbi from, uh, from uh, near Venice, that area. And, uh, and Dovinietto was a highly learned person, uh, but very modern and he had an MD, which means he also had a PhD, and he knew astronomy very well and all kind of stuff like that. And he also knew how to learn. He did. And he's a classic case of the Italian rabbis in the late 16, early 1700s, where they had a college education, but they also knew how to learn. And they were generally from guys, even though they dressed very modern and all that. And it's very famous that Nieto, who was a from guy, I repeat it again, but highly educated, 10 times more educated than the Balabatim who employed him, you know, they were like Portuguese, Spanish, businessmen, Jewish, you know, that kind of thing. 
And, you know, they know how to do business. They didn't know intellectual things. And he did. And he gave a speech. Uh, this is the famous part in which he discussed uh, what Spinoza said in terms of nature as God. Now, for those of you who know I'm talking about, Benedict Spinoza, Bart Spinoza, was a Sephardic Dutch Jew who in the middle of the 1600s uh, published a book and then several books, The Theological Political Treatise, in which he strongly criticized um, you know, the Bible and the Talmud and things like that. Uh, I'm dumbing this down tremendously, but to tell you the truth, I'm not a Bucky in Spinoza either. I know the basics. My friend here, Professor Malam, is the world's expert in Spinoza. But um, suffice it to say, Spinoza was excommunicated by the Balabatim of the Portuguese community in Amsterdam. Hope I haven't confused you. And after that, he became like a byword, right or wrong, for atheism. And to put it in simple English, I'm trying to dumb this down as much as I can. If I said nature and God are identical, the question becomes like this, what do I mean by that? And so, now listen closely. If I say nature and God are identical, I could be speaking in a from way. That what you guys think is nature is actually God's mode of operating in the world. God works through nature. That's how, that's how he runs the world. Uh, with the rare exception of miracles, which are very rare. That's a classic Maimonidean uh, perspective. So that the nature, in fact, Tev and Elohim are the same Demetrius, you know, you have a lot of that kind of stuff. But that's a firm statement. What I'm saying is, you people who think that all you see out there is science and nature, that's the lavush that Hashem uses to hide His presence when He runs the world. Because if you saw Him, you'd have no Bechira. That's one way of looking at it. Now I'll tell you a different way of looking at it. Nature and God are the same. You dumb religious uh, superstitious people. Really, the, the, the thing is nature. It's science. You don't, you're not able to handle the fact that there's just no God and there's secularity and there's only science. You call it God. So when you say God struck the, uh, the, the, the Medina with a coronavirus, that's just a dumb way of you talking to say that medically and scientifically something called coronavirus popped up. Maybe it was manufactured, as some people think. Maybe it came from other places. But it's a scientific virus. And these things happen. And, uh, and get over it. And, uh, you know, there's nobody to blame. Uh, this is part of the natural world. Notice you're saying there is no God as we understand it. God with a personality. So, again, is nature God? Is God nature? The question becomes like this. Do you mean that it's really all God just looks like nature? Or do you mean the other way around? It's really all nature just looks like God. So this guy got into a speech, which has been analyzed greatly by historians because they love this kind of intellectuality stuff. David Nieto, and he thought that he would explain it for his Balabatim. Clearly he talked over their heads, you know, which is a problem that rabbis can get into. But the guy had like, I don't know, 10 degrees in, uh, from university, so he was very uh, eggheady. And he wasn't from God, no question about it, but his Balabatim, when they heard him say nature is God, God is nature, they took him to be a, a pantheist, in other words, a spinosis, and they said the guy's not from. And he said, that's not what I meant. And they say, yes, it is. And by the time it's all over, he said this, send the speech to the Chachamsvi, the big rabbi who was in Hamburg at that time, and see what he says. And they said, okay, because he 
uh, as I said before, uh, new Spanish and Portuguese and not English, but, you know, uh, things like that. And Chacham Tzvi also had a reputation for being knowledgeable in philosophy, which was, again, unusual. You know, most of them at that time, you asked them a question about Spinoza and Nietzsche, and they don't know, you know, they, they know Gamari, they know Agatha, they're into medieval philosophy, but the Chacham Tzvi was one of those types that he, that he was. And what's interesting is, he read the speech closely. It's in the it's in the Sefer Chazam the Charles Lewis Chazam Tzvi, and he said the guy's from Lee Malone. He didn't mean that, uh, you know, it, there's no God is only nature. He meant there's no nature is only God. He meant he meant it in the from way, which means by the way that he was a very fair reader, and uh, you know he wasn't like some from fanatic. He gave it a very fair reading, and um, it also shows you that in, in far away in London. Uh, the Portuguese community, when they wouldn't know a theological matter, wrote to this Ashkenazi guy, because, as I said before, first of all, he had a, a, a reputation as a big gone, and second of all, he was familiar with the Sephardi side of things. Um, so, you know, these are unusual chubas that you find in the Chacham uh, He's got a lot of other stuff in there. I can't go through all this. Kashrus is very famous. You know, I think he's the one who said after 12 months, it's already kosher, you know, the milchig and the fleshig or the tray things, you know, if it's there for a long time. He is highly uh, original psaks in many areas, which is why the Chakansi is quoted fairly often in a lot of different contexts. That book made him. You know what I'm saying? No, does that put him on the map? And it does until today. The only problem is, he had a, well, at least I'm just telling you my opinion. I could be wrong. He said he had a cantankerous personality which is really not fit for the rabbinate. Now, what I mean is the communal rabbinate, the, the person of Bezdin, you have to, have to be a diplomat. Now, it's a fine line between being a diplomat and kissing up to the richy riches. Uh, and unfortunately, this line was blurred for a, a lot of people. And it's understandable. This is your salary. You don't want to offend the wrong people. Therefore, you close your eyes to things that perhaps you should not close your eyes to. And this is, again a, uh, what's it called, a professional uh, uh, risk for the rabbinate, especially the communal rabbinate. And he was built the other way. If he saw the rich Balabatim, which they always did, you know, somehow cheating or embezzling or things like that or using their influence incorrectly, he was no respecter person. He, he didn't have it in his nature, you know, to be a diplomatic conciliator and said, let's talk this out um, calmly first. I think... He went from one to zero, you know, from zero to ten in a second, and was ready to declare war. And I'm not saying he was incorrect on the moral side of it, because he probably was right. And I'm serious. But it's not like he tried peace first, you know what I mean? Now, the reason I mention this is because here's a person who was only in his 50s. He'd never been a rov, especially a communal rov, although he wanted to be. But if you follow the story that I've been saying tonight... You know, he, he was for a year or two or three in Buddha. Uh, but not as a rabbi, he had like a yeshiva or something like that. Um, then he had all those wanderings. He ended up in Hamburg, where most of the years his following was the rabbi. He, he could run the yeshiva, the kleis they called it. You know, so like a, like a little yeshiva, uh, which he was very successful at. And then when he, his father-in-law died, as I told you, and he became part-time the rov, it didn't work out. You know, he, he couldn't get along with the other guy. And it's also true, he couldn't flatter, you know, the, the Balabatim correctly. He didn't play the game. So he definitely had his followers, because people could recognize, 
you know, his uh, greatness, but he also had opponents. And he wasn't one to try to politic and conciliate, like Moshe Rabbeinu tried to. Remember, Korach made a trouble for Moshe. Listen, Moshe could have gone from zero to ten, which he eventually did. He, he, he swallowed him up in the ground. But first, Moshe tried to conciliate. You understand? He, you know, Moshe tried. It didn't work. That was who Korach was, but he tried. Chalmsby doesn't come across like that kind of person. And here's the thing. So the first time he ever got a real Steller on his own, by his own, for his own, was in 1710. He was elected on, on, on New Year's Day in 1710 to be the Avbazin, the chief rabbi of the Ashkenazi community in Amsterdam, which is an important community. Uh, there are two communities there. There's the Portuguese-Spanish one, uh, which was the famous uh, community, and that had a, a lot of rich people in it. And then there was the Ashkenazic one, which was a lot poorer, but they had their rich, richy riches. And the community, as I said before, paid him a lot of money and gave him a lot of covenant, gave him a parsonage and all the rest of it. But, as I said before, if there was an election, obviously there was more than one candidate. And the, whoever wins means there's a losing party. I don't remember who ran against him, but there were other factions. And a lot of times these factions were based on local petty politics. That's usually how it goes. Let's say, for example, there's two rich guys. This is very common. There were two rich people in Kehillah. Let's call one Reuben, the other one Shimon. Reuben got his guys together and slipped through that this that his candidate should become the Rav. Well, Shimon tried to get another guy because he doesn't like Reuben. <laughs> he get it? Not because he cares about the Rav, because he doesn't like Reuben. And the job of the Rav, if he's smart, is once he gets elected, to try to win over Shimon. You get it? Now, I don't say that's easy. A classic example of what I'm talking about is the Nota Behuda, who was elected by one group, the other group didn't like him, and he endeavored with a fair degree of success, to conciliate and win over the opponents till everybody agreed he was the right guy for the job. Apparently, the Chacham Tzvi wasn't like that. He came in, he was elected by one group. The other group, the losers, doesn't matter who their name is, I could give you the information, but what do you care? Um, the other group didn't like him, and, uh, and he made no bones to try to uh, you know, win them over or anything like that, which made them uh, even more angry, especially because he got such a big salary, and you know how Balabatim are, oh, you know, he's not worth it, and so on and so forth. And he, by the way, wrote in his contract that uh, he, he doesn't have to listen to the board. This is what he wrote in, right? And uh, he, wanted a big, he wanted a big salary. Listen to what I'm saying. He wanted a big salary so that he doesn't charge for weddings, he doesn't charge for funerals, he doesn't charge for exuvus. Those the little ways that Rabbanan made money selling hummus, which when you think about it is not so honorable. He wanted, I get a big salary, and thus he does. So to increase his chashivas, he wanted that he gets a big salary, and then he doesn't take any perquisites. And uh, he made it clear, you know, he's under nobody's control. So, you know, his faction was okay with that, but the others didn't like that, because at the end of the day, richy rich people, especially the dumb ones, can't stand it if the rabbi's not under their thumb. That's how it used to be in Kalah You know, for better or worse. They can't stand it if the rabbi doesn't dance to their tune. Um, they, uh, they couldn't take it. He, he, and he would not do that. He wasn't built that way. And so all I can tell you is that, um, after a year or two, uh, when he, you know, they would tell him something, he would say no, right? Or they would say, don't do this. He'll say yes. Why are you saying yes? Because I know I'm right and you're wrong. That's how he talked. You know, instead of saying, let me hear you out. Let's talk about it and so forth. And so the anti-group 
worked real hard to get them fired. Now, I'm going to tell you how the old system used to work. Maybe I mentioned it before, maybe I haven't. The old system in Kali Yisrael was, especially with Ashkenazim, a guy is elected as a Avbezin, a chief rabbi of a community, on a three-year contract. And then, when the three years is over, he has to get re-elected. And once he's re-elected, that's for life, or until he leaves on his own. That was the system. You have the first term, which is for three years, and then, you know, if that doesn't work, it doesn't work out. But if it does work out, then you're elected again, and then that you consider you're in. They can't fire you. But having said that, it was most unusual. Once they took the trouble to elect somebody, especially a competent person, and Kabbalah a super competent person, to uh, not be reelected. That was a big diss. Oh my goodness. But the anti-party, the Shimon party, worked to do that. And, uh, and, they, and, and they succeeded. You understand? They succeeded. Well, let's put it this way. Um, they, after two years, they already passed a resolution on the board of directors, known as the Balabatim, the anti-party, that uh, he's not going to be reelected a second time. Instead of trying to conciliate or talk about it, you know, or have friends come and talk about it, or something like that, he basically said, yes, you don't have the right to do that. Now, they, they had the right to do it, you understand? But, you know, as he saw it, they don't have the right to do it. And uh, it got really messy, because when he took that attitude, then the anti-party simply said, yes, we're not going to pay salary. And uh, what he called, he said, you can't do it. And he uh, publicly uh, attacked them, said, they're not paying me the salary they agreed to in contract. And they sent an official uh, from the board of directors, the secretary, to say like this, if you, uh, <laughs> if, if you uh, agree to leave after three years because you will be unelected, we'll pay you all the money. Okay? And he wouldn't do it. <laughs> he wouldn't do it. And so what I'm trying to say is he got himself in the loggerheads with his own Balabatim, Dashkenazim. Smack in the middle of this trouble happened. Because, again, he was elected in 1710. He was there three years, 1710, 1711, 1712. In 1712 came this whole mess. And he's not elected. And he claims that he's, he still has the right to be there. I don't remember on what basis. And, uh, oh my goodness. Now, in the middle of all this, uh, while these fights are going to the Ashkenazi community, the Sephardic community had nothing to do with this. The Spanish-Portuguese community, they had their own. As a matter of fact, the rabbi, there was this guy, Shlomo Ailon, who had, who had been Shvachamaisis, you know, the one who was a, a secret sympathizer with Sabatianism, was no big Talmud and definitely was no big comparison to the Chacham Svi. I mean, it's not the same universe. And he knew it, and to be perfectly fair about it, he tried to be diplomatic. The Sephardi rabbi, Ailon, and when the Chachamsi was elected, I thought it's a patent place here. The Chachamsi was elected, so he treated him with great derechers, and he sent him to hard shilas, and he sent him to do the gittin. In other words, he paid proper respect to him because he realized that, although he, theoretically they're colleagues, but in terms of alumnus they're not, and there's nothing wrong. In other words, he, he behaved properly. The trouble is a, 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 a snake came into the Garden of Eden because in June of 1713, which means by now there's a, a battle in the Ashkenazi community. The Chachamsi won't leave, and the others, and, and the majority on the board, not the minority, but the majority on the board, 
doesn't want to reelect him and basically voted him out. And he's not leaving. So what do you do? And they're not paying him. And he's not leaving. In the middle of all this, one of these famous fakers of Sabatianism came to Amsterdam. A guy named Nechem Chayun. That's a whole parsha by itself. But I'm only giving you the basics. A guy came who was a, a Sabatian. But he said he was not. Okay? And he used to... Uh, pre, uh, he was, a, he was a, a Darshan. And he also wrote books. And here we are in the era of the Sabatianism, which means people would write Sfarim and tracts and chidushim and drushes and things like that and commentaries on the, on the Bible. And they were very Kabbalistic stuff. You know and I know 99.9% of people out there have no idea what's flying. You read a, I mean, you know, you don't know this. I don't know. Who, who knows that stuff? And a lot of times the communities would read this and say, oh, this is very formal. And they would buy the book. Or, you know, somebody would teach it or something like that. And it contained secret communist doctrines. It contained secret Sabatian doctrines. Which I guarantee you, it would take a real scholar to figure out what they're talking about. Because you don't know this fear is this, and that thing is that. and uh, Those who know, know. The public in general doesn't know. But this was an era, precisely, precisely in which, this was an era when um, the... How should I put it? When uh, the phenomenon in Yisrael of secret Sabatians who were trying to disseminate their, their doctrines in the guise of regular Torah literature was at its height. And, and that's why they had Haskamas. Because basically, if you get a Haskamas from somebody who knows, he said, I went through this and it's not secret Sabatian stuff. And believe me, there are a lot of swarms that got through the, the, the people gave us comments didn't realize. Only in the 20th century do scholars who are looking with a fine-tooth comb discover Sabatian uh, teachings within them, and sometimes surprising in respect to Swarm. In the 18th century, it was uh, Yaakov Emden, the son of the uh, Chacham Tzvi. He made it his business to be the Senator McCarthy and find all the communism, and he goes through all the books and point out the Sabatian doctrines in them. But um, the problem is that most people don't understand this. Okay? Now, um, so this guy named Nechem Mechayun came, and the trouble is, and here's this like a movie, he was originally from Salonika, and later Sarajevo. Well, guess who was in Yeshiva at the same time? Chacham Tzvi. So what a bad piece of luck. He comes to Amsterdam, and nobody knows him, and he's dressed like an Eric Israel type of guy, and he's rich... Portuguese Jews think, oh, he's a real from-looking guy. He looked like a video safe, you know. And um, he gives all these drashot and things like that. And he's raising money uh, to publish his uh, swarm. And he actually uh, behaves with a lot of chumras. He looks like a holy man. I'm serious. He looks like a holy man. And he gets a whole following. And uh, he's get, and, and everything's fine. And the, and the rabbi, Shlomo Eilon, probably knew him from the old days when he was young in, in Salonika. And basically, the idea is like this. You don't tell about my past, I won't tell about your past, you know. I got a good job over here, don't mess me up. The trouble is, there was another Sephardi living in um, Amsterdam at that time. It's a bad luck, or Moshe Chagiz, who's the son of a big Rashiv in Israel. And he was like a, a, a Sephardi heresy hunter. Uh, there's a whole academic biography from Professor Elisheva Kralbach. And uh, he made it his business 
to also ferret out these uh, Sabathian-type guys, and he called him out right away. So it's a funny story, because when he came, Chacham Tzvi said, you look familiar, did I ever see you before in Amsterdam? If that's, if, I mean, in, in Salonika when I was young, then you're Trafe. And he went and, 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 and he went to him and he said, no, I'm a different person. And he really shot the bull with him. And, and Chacham Tzvi said, well, maybe I was wrong. Okay, you know, maybe I have the wrong person. And then this Moshe Haggis said, no, 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 you had the right person. <laughs> you understand? And uh, the bottom line is, when this happened, so uh, meanwhile, the Sephardim, the Spanish-Portuguese Jews, had treated him with great covet. And for them to say that they had been had, it would make them look like fools. And they couldn't do that. You understand? And uh, the Chacham Tzvi, about a month after uh, this guy showed up, okay, uh, Chacham Tzvi, uh, you put it out there, he says, listen, I read what this guy wrote, and I read it with a fine-tooth comb. Hey, he's a traif as a pig. He said, this is a Sabathianism. Now, I'll tell you again, a guy like Chacham Tzvi can understand, because he was a big buck in Kabul and all the rest of it, he could tell the fine lines that most people couldn't tell. The Portuguese Jews didn't know what he's talking about. All they know is the Ashkenazi guy, who's not a member of our community, who's not a rabbi in our community, called out somebody that we consider to be Chashev, and uh, is making us look, look stupid. Now, if he really is a heretic, in Hanami. But our rabbi, Shlomo Ayalon, says he's not a heretic. Because what was Shlomo Ayalon going to say? Uh, I gave him a haskama, and now it turns out that he was treif. Then he'll say, well, you were learning Sabathianism with me when we were both in Salonika decades ago. And so, like I said before, it's a movie. It's a movie. And uh, it would be a good movie, wouldn't it? Uh, now, here's where Ramsey, in my opinion, you know, didn't play his cards right. Because what he should have done was gone to Shlomo alone and gone to the richy rich guys of the Spanish-Portuguese community and say, listen, behind closed doors, look, a mistake was made, but let's try to cover everybody's covered. Let's get this guy out of town. And, you know, let's sort of like retract very diplomatically any huskumbus we gave him and, and so forth. But he didn't do that. What he did was he put a harem with him. He declared a, a public harem. Now, wait a minute. He put him a harem because of Apocorus. Wait a second. I get that. But you're in, you're the rabbi of the Ashkenazi community. You can't put a harem without consulting us. That should apply to the Portuguese community. You get that? You can hear that. You know, you have your uh, bailiwick and we have ours. And by the way, you're not so posh in your community because they want to fire you. And you're doing something make us look really stupid. And, you know, we're not so sure we want to go along with this. And again, instead of being diplomatic about it, um, the Chacham Tzvi and Ramosha Chagiz, the other guys, they said, no, you're a bunch of dummies. And you, and, which was true. And you don't understand Kabbalah stuff. And therefore, you, you, you backed the wrong guy. And really, you're doing something very stupid. Well, that's not a way to win friends and influence people. You understand? And so, Nehemiah Chayun was able to go to this fireman and say like this, this Chacham Tzvi guy is Ashkenazi, typically walks all over us. You know, they think we don't know how to learn. They think we're nothing. We're garnished. He's uh, making fun of you. So he was able to appeal to Sephardi pride in a bad way. I told you it was a snake in Eden. And, um, oh, it's a long story. It's an interesting, it's a long story. And the, Spanish, the Portuguese community said like this, because they're Balabatim. They run the community from Balabatim. They say, listen, we will appoint a committee from the Adjunta, you know, from the governing board of the uh, Portuguese Jews uh, with the Chacham on there. And we will then 
examine whether this guy is a heretic, and we will issue a report, and that will be the basis of further action. Well, I get it, and that is the usual procedural way, and it's a proper procedural way to, for a community to deal with matters. But not in something as delicate as this, because they don't know what the heck they're talking about. And so they investigated in the Chemichayun, the their rabbi, Shlomo Ayalon, said he's okay. They issued a report exonerating him. Chacham Tzvi then issued a report saying, you guys are a bunch of dummies, you don't even know what you're saying, unless your rabbi is himself a Sabatian, in which case you're all abating a bunch of heretics and you're being led around by the nose. Well, as I said before, everything he said was true, but it was the opposite of diplomatic, and therefore the result is they all got real angry at him, and uh, uh, the Sephardim were the ones who had the big connections with the Dutch government, and uh, they actually got a Christian lawyer to uh, tell him to come to court, and by the time it's all over, um, what shall I say, uh, they used their pull to get him kicked out of the country. Now, maybe Dashkenazim went along, his enemies. So by the time he left, by the time he gets 1714, he had to cut out. Uh, he was about to be arrested. And that's pretty uh, disgusting. And so somebody who had been at the height of a career and had a great salary and all the rest of it, uh, turned out all the way the opposite. You understand? Turned out all the way the opposite. And the Dutch government didn't know who to believe, uh, the authorities, because he said, you're kicking me out because I'm, I'm chasing the heresy. And the only thing they could do was go to a Christian professor, Saren Heiss, he's the famous guy who translated the Pierce Mishnahis around him into Latin. And uh, it was a whole mess. And Achil Hashem, it goes without saying. And uh, and the Adhunta, the, 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 the Portuguese put out a thing, uh, this guy, Chacham uh, Tzvi, is no good. You understand? And uh, he's a troublemaker, and he's wrong when he said this guy is a heretic. Well, well, well. This once this hit the 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 outer Jewish world, really hit the fan. They 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 look stupid because all of a sudden, all the rabbonim of Europe, Sephardim and Ashkenazi Italian, wrote to the Adhunta in Portugal. Are you stupid? <laughs> you doing chacham so you hear he's bigger than all you guys put together. And second of all, we know this guy Nehemiah Chayun, and he is a heretic. So that made them have egg all over their face, but they could never admit it, as you would understand. And the result is, they told this guy, just leave town, you know? But they could never be in a situation to apologize, you know, to the Chacham Tzvi. And this is how a guy who was at the top of his career, you know, lost it all. Now, in his mind, and not incorrectly, he was a martyr. And that's not incorrect, right? It's not incorrect, because, look, um, he could have um, closed his eyes. I call it being diplomatic. He would call it, you know, uh, sanctioning uh, uh, a courses, and uh, you know he he like the expression he's a slave to his conscience. You know what I mean? He said, "I call call a spade a spade." If the guy was abikaris, abikaris, and the public doesn't know what they have to be told, and whatever happens to me doesn't matter. So a Muslim nefesh he was, but the result was he lost his whole position. What do you do now? It says it's seventeen fourteen, and he died in seventeen eighteen. So the next four years, peripatetic. First he went to London. You understand? But, and by the way, Dashkenazim in London were glad to make him chief rabbi of the, of the Ashkenazim community in London. But if you know anything about London, nobody was from, you know, 95%. They're all orthodox. You understand what I'm saying? They're all orthodox, and they're all traditional, but they all open on Shabbos, and, and you know, the Kasha, forget it, and so forth. I mean, the, the standard of religious observance was lousy in London, always was. 
and this was well known. And for a guy like Chachamzi Ashkenazi, that's not what he's looking for. So he could have made money and, and, and lived as a process rabbi in London. That's not what he wanted to do. So as a result, he went uh, across back into Europe and, and was wandering around. Now, he had 11 kids. During these years, it's very interesting, he made a lot of very smart shiduchim moves because I think he married most of them off. And uh, he married them all off to rich families and learned families and all the rest of it. So he knew how to play the shiduchim game. Uh, you know, this rabbi and this rabbi and this family and this family and all the rest of it. And of course, wherever he went, his fame preceded him, but, there, you know, there weren't any positions for him. Uh, and so he said, I'm going back to Poland. What do you mean back to Poland? He never was in Poland. Yeah, but his, his grandfather was in Poland. Remember, I told you they were originally in Vilna. And when he came to, it's, it's very interesting, when he uh, came to, I mean, there's a, I don't want to give you all the details. While he was in Poland, he was called back to uh, Hamburg to, to be a, a, a dying on a complicated Choshimishma case. You don't have to know all that. Um, I'm going to give all the, I'm trying to give a basic uh, uh, feature of a very unusual person. That I'm taking longer than usual and and, I, and I'm painting in sharper colors than usual because the Chachamtsvi is like all these famous rabbis of the 16th, 17th century, but more so. right? His life is uh, more sharply etched. And um, when he came back to Poland, let's put it this way, uh, the rabbi in in Lemberg, in Lvov, had just died, and they offered it to him, sign and scene. So this is interesting. Somebody who had never been in Poland, and Poland's supposed to be the Iker Makom Yiddishkeit, and the main place he, she was all the rest of it. But his fame preceded him. And they knew, yeah, he was in Amsterdam, he was in these places, but he's a big deal. And uh, they elected him to be chief rabbi in, in Lemberg, um, where he was like for half a year before he died. And when he came to uh, Lemberg, so, uh, again, be elected means what? It means the board of directors, the Richie Riches, they're the ones who did it. The Richie Riches, they elected him. So there's about five or six guys that counted. That's the one who elected him. So once again, even in Lemberg, which is supposed to be firmer, they expect that he would kiss up to them. And he wasn't built that way. He just wasn't built that way. The head guy who got him elected was doing shtick with the Kahila money. It's always like that. And, uh, you know, uh, playing the funny games. And... The Chacham uh, the new rabbi, he says, I want to see all your books, and I want to see what's happening over here, and we're going to make this public. And the rich guy got so angry that the rabbi dares to uh, challenge him. Listen to this. That the same rich guy who got him elected went, this is Poland, so they play hardball. He went to the nobleman who owned Lemberg, the Polish nobleman, and he said, we got a troublemaker over here. You know, arrest this guy and beat him up or something like that. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? I got all the door, but he crossed... He crossed the rich guy until he was ready to get him all uh, beaten up. Uh, and the nobleman had him uh, dragged in front of his, uh, into his palace. But listen to this. The guy made a, a miscalculation. Most of the rabbis can only talk Yiddish. The uh, rich guys usually talk a little Polish. And so a rabbi would come, maybe trembling, and this and that and the other, and he wouldn't know what to do, and he'd be beaten up or thrown out of town on a, on a, on a garbage wagon. I'm serious. And uh, he couldn't protest anybody because can he speak any Polish? Chaham Tzvi was a highly educated guy. And so he began talking to the nobleman in Italian, which was considered very hush of a language, because he knew Italian. And the nobleman, I forget, whatever, Prince Poniatowski or something like that, he said, wow. And they had a whole conversation. And since he was able, first of all, he was blown away that the rabbis educated. And second of all, the Chantzi was able to give his side. He says, I'm being framed over here because this guy's uh, cheating, uh, you know, the, the Jewish community, stealing money or whatever it was. I forget what it was. 
and uh, the Nilman said like this, "Wow, you're right." Uh, and he made the other, and he made the, the Balabas apologize. You understand? And maybe punished him or something like that. This is a most unusual case because he was the most unusual rabbi. Um, this is how it went, and I think if I remember correctly, he appointed the Pnei Yeshua to be the head of the Chinuch system over there. He started to have big plans. He was going to turn Lemberg into something. Why not? That's who he was. And he was only 61, 62. So he wasn't old. And then he died. Uh, now, I remember, by the way, Derek Hagav, because I did work in the Yehuda, he married one of his daughters off while he was traveling through Poland to a great aunt of the Yehuda, I guess it would be. His grandfather's daughter, something like that. Uh, great-grandfather's daughter, maybe. Uh, I forget which. And... This great-grandfather was a very chosh of a guy, head of a big hill, meaning big, big clan and rich and powerful in the Vada Baratzes. But, but you have no idea what these rich and powerful guys were in Poland. They're all little Hitlers. And this, and this guy got angry at two Balabatim that wouldn't follow what he, what he wanted them to do, this rich Landau guy. And uh, he got him hanged. He told on him to the Goyim, and uh, for some reason or another... They, uh, you know, uh, he got he framed him, and uh, this was notorious. And when he found out about it, even though he just married his daughter off to the guy's his son to the guy's daughter, uh, no, he married his daughter to the guy's son. He like cut off all relations with him, and uh, it's famous that the guy went to see him, and he said, He's like, I'm being a friend with a moser. He didn't care, you know. He 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 called it he called a spade a spade, and so. Um, when he died suddenly, and left a big Rosham uh, for a whole bunch of reasons, and it shocked his son, Yaakov Emden, who, who writes about this for the rest of his life. He's under the shock of this. You know, he never got over his father's death. I'm serious. I'm serious. And he viewed his life as a repeat of his father's life and all that. And uh, so he had a very sharp uh, character. Uh, now, uh, he wasn't, a, 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 he had all the pluses and minuses, therefore. To me, he's a very interesting person. And I'm not even doing justice. I'm just talking about the, the, the scratching the surface. He had all the pluses and minuses of a sharp, very sharply edged person. Uh, a gone, he certainly was. A Pisic, uh, obviously. Uh, and one of the great Poskin, one of the Shalos and Chubas Chacham Tzvi, which is his book, put him, put him up there. It still does. Um, he, he couldn't stay for a long time in, in any position. You understand? Because I guess they would say too honest. <laughs> maybe maybe a rabbi can't be too honest and too straight. If you're too straight and you tell somebody what you really think, it's, it's not necessarily a good idea. On the other hand, maybe I'm wrong. He's saying the other way, you become corrupted by the system. I'd rather get fired than become corrupted by the system. Uh, plenty of rabbinim, unfortunately, got corrupted by the system because they had to, this, this had made a living. And so uh, you leave this uh, subject, um, who died in 1718, leave this subject with a, uh, a life that was, uh, you know, uh, a combination of heroic and tragic, at least in my opinion, heroic and tragic. And that's why I said before that the Chacham Tzvi is one of those famous Ashkenazi-type rabbis from the 17th, 18th century, of whom I've done a fair amount this past year doing these podcasts. But he's more so. He, he's different than the others. And, um, uh, he, and he had, sometimes they say like this, sometimes the, some people have the virtues of their faults, I would say he had the faults of his virtues. Uh, that's kind of heavy, but it's food for thought. I know I've gone way over time, but with the Chachamsu, you could go six hours, can't you? And every one of it would be interesting, because as I said before, it's a mini-series. Um, 
the, the Nehemiah Hayun controversy, the other controversies, um, and he was the archetype of the anti-Sabatian. Anyway, I've done enough. Have a good night. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.